and welcome to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm Brian Reardon, your host, and with me as always, Marianne Steiner, editor of Health Progress. Hello, Marianne. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me again. And in this episode, we're going to talk uh, about what's in the current issue of Health Progress, and that is the topic of Medicaid. A lot to cover, a lot of information. We're going to try to break it down for you. And we have three experts with us in the room. We are coming to you from a studio in Washington, D.C. And with us, we have Cindy Mann. She's a former deputy administrator with CMS and currently a partner with Manette Health in D.C. Cindy, thanks for being with us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. We also have Joan Alker. She is the executive director of the Center for Children and Families at Georgetown University. Hello, Joan. Thanks so much for having me. And we also have Angela Botticelli. She is the chief of staff at the Catholic Health Association. Hello, Angela. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, Cindy, I'm going to start with you. Um, Medicaid, particularly for Catholic health care, very important program, very important for some 73, 74 million Americans. Um, I don't think most people realize the breadth and scope of the Medicaid program and how many lives it touches. From your perspective as somebody who studies this day in and day out, I mean, this is what you live and breathe, um, the future of Medicare, how concerned should we be in Catholic health care that we saw a couple of summers ago some major threats to funding for it? Post-midterm election, has the outlook gotten better? What's your just overall outlook for Medicaid? Well, I think generally the outlook is very positive. There's a lot of wonderful things going on across the country in the Medicaid program. Um, but the, uh, uh, the, the debate went on, that went on in 2017, um, it was about uh, really unraveling the Medicaid program in very fundamental ways, eliminating the funding for the Medicaid expansion, um, which is covering uh, millions of people across the country, as well as imposing a federal cap on the funding that the federal government provides for the program, which would be a, uh, a, a really devastating structural change to the way the program operates and to its ability to uh, meet its mission. And they talk about per capita caps and block grants. What's that? They're somewhat similar, but they're also different. Can you kind of break it down in simple terms? What is the difference between per capita caps and block grants? Yeah, let me start a little bit with, with explaining how Medicaid's financed now, because it's pretty be unique. Yeah. Um, the way the financing works is that it's jointly financed by the federal government and the states. And in the average state, it, it varies by state, um, the federal government pays a little bit more than 60% of the costs. And um, it's the cost of serving all the Medicaid beneficiaries for all the services uh, in that state. And if cost ends up being higher than what anyone anticipated, the federal government shares those additional costs. If there are savings, the federal government shares those savings. Um, and so the federal government and the state both have an interest in, in having the program operate efficiently um, and uh, in a way that's attentive to costs. Um, but what's key is that the funding structure, there's no cap on the amount of federal dollars that the federal government contributes. And so um, the, the, it's probably one of the most critical aspects of the Medicaid program to keep it very strong and effective. If caps were imposed, either a per capita cap or a block grant, and then I'll go to the differences, um, what that means is that if costs rise, um, unexpectedly, and, as they do, yeah. right? Recession, new drug costs, new therapies being introduced to the market. Um, the federal government automatically shares in those costs. But under both a per-person cap, which is called a per capita cap, or under a block grant, 
the unanticipated but inevitable changes in costs would not be shared by the federal government. They, they would, would be borne like solely by or? the state. It depends how the, how the caps are designed. So the way they were designed in the repeal and replace uh, proposals was that they would um, grow by a certain percentage of, of inflation, uh, but well below what the expected rate of, of, of health care costs would be. And, and we should be clear that those proposals in 2017 were about cutting federal government funding. Um, they were not about transforming health care, increasing efficiency. They were very much to achieve federal savings. And, that, and so caps, first of all, translate into cuts. Um, and the Congressional Budget Office found that, and that was certainly I mean, that was the, in, the intention of the exercise. A block grant works a little bit differently because you don't, in a per capita cap, you get a certain amount from the federal government for each person who's enrolled, that's capped, so it doesn't account for increases in health care costs um, that aren't built into the cap. Uh, a block grant goes a step further and just gives you an aggregate amount of dollars, you as a state, for operating your program. So then you are at risk as a state for not just increased drug costs, costs of serving people, um, opioid epidemic, putting more financial pressures on the health care system. Um, but you're also at risk for enrolling more people, right? The more mm. people that you enroll, the, yes. uh, the greater the costs are in the Medicaid program. And, and as we know, Medicaid is unique in the sense that it, it, it is intended and, and is in, uh, designed in some respects to expand during recessions when the need is greater. Um, but there would be no ability for states to be able to uh, manage that increased enrollment. Now, under the block grant, though, some states may argue, well, I'd rather spend the money as I see fit. Maybe I need to put more money towards fighting the opioid epidemic, or maybe I need to put more money towards prenatal care, or whatever the case may be. Why, you know, explain how that argument um, may come up short, or, or is, is there some validity to that, the fact that the states have a little more flexibility to take that chunk of money, and they know best what their citizens need? There, there's always the promise of more flexibility, programmatic flexibility with capped funding. We never saw actually um, anyone deliver on that promise in the debates in 2017. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll note on that. Um, but two things to say about that, um, and, and it is the common refrain. One is that there's quite a bit of flexibility in the Medicaid program now. Yes, there are definitely federal rules, the federal government pays you know, almost two-thirds of the cost. So there's some minimum standards that states have to follow in terms of um, how they organize the program and how they deliver services, but quite a bit of leeway uh, in terms of uh, designing the delivery system, in terms of rates that are paid to providers. So a state wants to say, wow, I really need to beef up my uh, opioid response system. They are perfectly uh, free and, in fact, encouraged to do that. Under federal law, they don't even need to get any federal approval okay. for that. That's not a special dispensation. Those are all normal decisions within a state Medicaid program. So there, there are areas of flexibility, lots of flexibility. There's also some constraints, and the federal government um, always promises more flexibility if they're in exchange for cap funding. Um, the, the problem is, is that probably the most important um, 
uh, area of flexibility for a state operating its Medicaid program is to have the funding available that it needs to be able to serve people uh, in the way that it, it sees fit. And so uh, they're, they're, uh, they would have the flexibility under a cap um, uh, probably to decide how to make cuts. Um, more than what they would do now because their funding would definitely be much more limited and it would uh, states as as we all know are not really in a structural position to be able to handle the kinds of changes in health care costs and enrollment costs that come about uh, without some support from the federal government um, so they would have flexibility to reduce program uh, but probably no flexibility to improve it because the dollars would be lacking this is probably a naive question, but I, I certainly understand why the federal government would be encouraging caps, but I don't understand why any state would want that. Well, it's a really good question. I think any, you know, I think there's, first of all, a lot of misinformation, including sometimes even up to the governor's level about um, Medicaid and Medicaid financing, and they're often faced with uh, a growing state budget in the Medicaid program and think that, oh, if I just had more flexibility, I would control it. It's, it's federal rules. So there's a lot of misinformation and myth about what they can do now in order to, to control program cost. Um, and it tends to be also uh, often very ideological, um, you know, uh, reducing spending and uh, eliminating entitlements to health care or other kinds of service um, can be an ideology that, that people adhere to even if, um, in fact, it's uh, not to their uh, immediate or short-term um, and long-term fiscal interests in the states. Yeah, and Brian, maybe I could just jump in here. Um, you know, I've been working on Medicaid for a long time, and it's kind of the best of times and the worst of times in some respects. And one thing that I think the debate about repealing the Affordable Care Act, as Cindy mentioned, the issue of capping Medicaid and cutting Medicaid very much came to the fore in that debate. And what we see now is that Medicaid is very popular with the voters. Um, about three-quarters of voters have a favorable opinion of Medicaid, and that cuts across party lines. So I think amongst the public and the voting public, there's really strong support for Medicaid. But there continues to be a pretty ideologically driven resistance, both to Medicaid expansion in the states that haven't picked that up, um, as well as clearly uh, here in Washington with respect to efforts to cut and cap the program. So I think um, we're going to continue to see those efforts that may move now, since Congress uh, rejected that approach, may move to uh, an administrative approach uh, through the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and we're starting to hear rumors about that. What are you hearing, uh, Joan, when you, know, you, you advocate on behalf of children and families? Um, do you get a pretty receptive audience? Because it seems like, oh, Medicaid helping babies and helping moms. Obviously, it's more than that, but from your perspective, what are what some of the feedback policy makers are providing to you when you talk about protecting the program? So, you know, one of the things that I think really did come to the fore in the debate about repealing the Affordable Care Act was that um, when people think of kids' coverage, they tend to think more of the CHIP program mm -hmm. because it has children in the name. Um, but the reality is that Medicaid is a children's program. Half the beneficiaries are children, and it is a vital source of coverage for kids, far bigger than the CHIP program. So I think we saw a growing awareness about that uh, as a result of the repeal debate. 
Um, I am concerned, I think we'll talk about this in a minute, that unfortunately we are seeing an increase now in uninsured children for the first time in many, many years. Um, we've seen a lot of public concern about that, but we've not heard anything from um, uh, the Trump administration or others in Congress um, uh, about this problem and how they're why, going why to address is it, why it. Why is there an increase in uninsured kids? So, you know, what we think it was, and this was data that we looked at from uh, 2017, was that most uninsured kids are eligible for public coverage, primarily Medicaid, but they're not enrolled or they may have fallen off. So think back to 2017. All year long, Congress was talking about repealing the Affordable Care Act, cutting Medicaid. Then we moved to a situation where the Children's Health Insurance Program expired September 30th, and it was not extended for months. That was unprecedented. So families were getting message after message about my coverage is going away. At the same time, the Trump administration was cutting funding for advertising, uh, for outreach, for community-based navigators who help families uh, address a, a somewhat complicated landscape of public coverage options. So we think because all, unfortunately, really no state was able to overcome this national climate and make progress, that's very unusual to see all states moving in the wrong direction like that. We think it was really these national trends. And then I'll just uh, add one more piece to the puzzle, which is, um, and unfortunately we think this is really the tip of the iceberg, um, a lot of immigrant families are feeling uh, very concerned, understandably so right now, but interacting with the government. You have a lot of kids who are in mixed status families where the children is a citizen, but the parent is an immigrant, perhaps an undocumented immigrant. So we did not see that as much in this data but we fear that that's coming. And that's why um, we're very concerned that this uninsured kids number will continue to go in the wrong direction in 2018. And, you know, I would just add that um, the Medicaid's track record for kids is such a success story, right? We have, you know, well over 90% of the eligible kids having been covered. In, who are eligible for Medicaid and being covered. We have hit the uninsured level uh, for kids at slightly below 5% before this most recent data that Joan talks about. And um, it's pretty extraordinary if you think about where the country was even 15 years ago. Um, and it's a success story that is truly about Medicaid and its smaller companion program, CHIP, really stepping in and making sure that um, kids get not just coverage, but really good coverage. That's absolutely right. I mean, this is, I think, a, a little-known success story, um, as Cindy mentions, for our country, that we've made so much progress. And there's lots of research coming out now because this uh, coverage for kids has been going on for a while now that we see kids who've had Medicaid have higher high school graduation rates higher attendance of college rates, they have better economic outcomes, which means ultimately this is such a good investment of government funds because um, when you have better economic outcomes, even as adults, better health outcomes, that's lowering costs to other systems. So, so all of that makes so much sense. I can't, I, I need you to explain what the resistance is. I mean. So it's, I think it's not, um, no one is gonna come out and say they're against kids' coverage, right? We rarely, rarely hear that. But yet, it was not a priority in 2017. 
all of those efforts to cut Medicaid when Medicaid is a children's program, as we established. We didn't hear the proponents of the cuts talking about children. In fact, we heard them say they want to protect children. So um, the rhetoric is going to be pro-child. The reality, not always. Yeah, and there was, um, you know, everything we talked about in terms of those financing changes that were proposed. Um, and there were both per capita caps and in later versions of the repeal and replace proposals, also a block grant. Those would have affected children as much as anyone else on the program. Um, there was no protection for them, nor really could there be, right? It, it's just a fundamental way of changing the financing of the program, and children are just such a large share of the program's beneficiaries, as, as Joan has pointed out. Angela, I want to bring you in. Um, the Catholic Health Association has made an effort, and we've been talking about this. Actually, even in these podcasts, we were doing little ads for Medicaid Makes It Possible. Um, can you share with, with our listeners, and again, I really encourage people to read the current issue of Health Progress because there is a lot of information that really, we try to get our arms around it, Mary, and I think you did a good job in finding authors to look at it from different perspectives. But from the big picture from CHA, Angela, um, what are we trying to do with this campaign, and what are we hoping... Um, our members and the public will, will, will do to participate. There were two reasons we launched the Medicaid Makes It Possible campaign. The first was, uh, while the program's popularity has grown, and we saw that um, throughout 2018, um, through the many discussions of Medicaid, there's still so much that's misunderstood about Medicaid. And we wanted to bring the stories about the people who are benefiting from the program to the public to really understand the different populations it serves. And an example of that we have on our website at chausa.org slash Medicaid is very simple and something that I think touches a lot of us. Um, Marjorie worked her entire life in Ohio. She raised three boys and worked as a secretary and an office manager. She'd been paying for her care out of pocket but knew that wouldn't last long. And at the age of 92, she was thrilled to learn that through Medicaid assistance, she could stay in the assistant li assisted living facility she had been in and continue to receive the care she needed. And this is all while getting to maintain independence. So that was one reason, um, wanting to grow the popularity and, and really get in there and share information uh, about the Medicaid program overall. And then as we just talked about a couple minutes ago, in 2017 and 2018, there were numerous attempts by Congress uh, to undermine the Medicaid program. And in 2019, we could see some of the same happening, whether it's in Congress to deal with the budget, uh, whether it's in the administration, um, wherever it is. On, we have a responsibility to get in front of it, share the stories that we receive about Medicaid, and, and really make sure people understand why those cuts can't happen. So as we kind of wrap up this discussion, I want to turn to Joan and, and Cindy and just can you share a little bit about, I think what I think personally what gets lost in the discussion is people having access to coverage. And again, Medicaid, I think all of the members of CHA that um, deal with Medicaid payments will not say it's a great paying program. Obviously, in, in a lot of cases, um, the services provided don't, you don't break even on it. A lot of services you lose money on. So it's not like Medicaid is this big windfall for hospitals and physicians, but it does provide coverage for folks, and we know that people who have some form of coverage are more likely to get the right care in the right setting. So can both of you quickly speak about that just from a policy perspective of why it's important that this program remain um, viable and be well-funded and continue on? You know, I think there's uh, lots of reasons for that, but, but none of us, I think, would choose to be uninsured. 
um, uh, if we had that choice. And we do that for logical reasons. We do that because it helps us uh, avoid bankruptcy. We do that because uh, it helps us avoid loss of uh, days at work. Uh, when we're sick and we can't get an antibiotic to deal with the strep throat or something that could be dealt with quickly. And we deal with it uh, and, and we care about having health insurance because we know that um, we will be, uh, people get sick and people age and they get frail and there's lots of reasons why we need to keep uh, ourselves strong. And you see that, of course, uh, for, for people who are eligible for Medicaid as well. It helps them avoid financial catastrophe, um, bills that they can't possibly uh, pay. And um, it helps them go to work every day and be able to, uh, uh, to, um, uh, to be productive um, members of society and be able to support their families. And lots of data about how um, Medicaid has been, um, and the Medicaid expansion in particular, because it's covering more um, uh, adults, has really allowed people to to work and to maintain jobs I that they otherwise wouldn't. Adults, it's a huge issue. You know, people who are going into independent living or assisted living or or skilled nursing, they've got to have the reassurance that at some point they're going to. I mean, at some point they're going to run out of resources. At some point there has to be, there has to be a safety net below them. And if if Medicaid is strong at that point, they, they do have that safety net. And just to pick it up from a kids and families perspective, I mean, it, it really makes more sense to use taxpayer dollars to make sure that folks have coverage so they get primary preventive care right. and their conditions don't worsen. You know, just because you don't give somebody health insurance doesn't mean their health needs go away. And so they're going to wind up in the ER, and that's not a good place to get care. We all know that. And, and I think just to pick up on a, a specific example, a couple of points Cindy was making, um, think about um, low-income moms who um, are, they experience maternal depression at epidemic levels. Uh, it's about 50% of women living under poverty experience some kind of postpartum or, or generalized depression. That is a condition that is very treatable if you have health insurance. So you can get medication and, and therapy, and we know that can help, and we know that Medicaid in particular can help from the Big Oregon study. Um, and yet, uh, we see proposals right now that will take away coverage from these women through you know, so-called work requirements. Um, and this is not only going to hurt the moms, it's going to hurt the kids. Because if you have a depressed mom, her ability to interact with her child in those critical years of brain development is really inhibited. And so it's very, very short-sighted um, to take away coverage from these families who are struggling to make ends meet. And when we think of future generations, we're going to pay the cost. Joan Alker, Executive Director of the Center for Children and Families at Georgetown, thanks for being with us. And Cindy Mann, uh, former Deputy Administrator at CMS and now a partner with the Manit Health Team here in D.C. Thank you for your time. I appreciate both of your perspective. What we're going to do next is we're going to talk with Rhonda Meadows. Rhonda is the president of Population Health Management at Providence St. Joseph's. She's going to talk a little bit about how Providence is using managed care to deliver Medicaid more efficiently in the markets they serve. So let's listen to this interview that we had with uh, Rhonda recently in San Antonio, Texas. And I'm here with Dr. Rhonda Meadows. She's the president of Population Health Management for Providence St. Joe's Health. And she also authored the article, Managing Medicaid the Right Way. And Dr. Meadows, I thought it was interesting that um, Providence really took a very um, 
methodical strategic look and how best to manage the Medicaid population and the communities you serve. Can you tell us a little bit about how you structure this? Uh, you, you brought a team together. We actually brought several teams together within our own system, within our communities, and with several partners going across um, our seven states. We've also been sharing some best practices with other groups across the nation. But our teams consist of probably three major focus areas. One is we do own and operate a provider-sponsored nonprofit Medicaid health plan. Um, we provide services in partnerships with our delivery system. So our medical management, pharmacy management, all of those things are actually done with both the health plan clinical leadership along with the delivery system, the, the actual physicians prescribing and treating patients. And does that give you uh, a unique advantage over systems that don't have uh, those plans? It does. What it does is it makes it so that we, we plan our strategies and make sure that we understand what preferred medications, what what preferred or current practices are in medicine. It's helping us make sure that they are regionally specific, that they um, address the standards of care that is, are today, and actually can incorporate some of the newer things coming out that need are needed and available to improve care delivery. It makes it so that it's much more real. And data is the key. Data is the actual secret sauce. Um, having the advanced analytics and being able to use that information strategically and with great skill actually informs not only our strategy, but that information also tells us what resources we're going to need. We can plan better for people, for human resources, uh, for facilities, for digital, for any of those things that we want to bring in. We can tell by the individual clinician, the practice, the community, the state, what they're going to need for resources. At the same time, that data helps us evaluate not only where there's a need, but how well our interventions are actually working. Are we being effective? We can track our performance and then we can adjust and readapt and make good decisions. So if you're a system that does not have a health plan but still want to do some of the things you're doing around data collection, what, what advice would you give uh, to those health care CEOs that are really trying to get their arms around the Medicaid population but don't have a health plan? Well, probably the, uh, the next big example is number two and how we actually deliver on our Medicaid improvement strategy. The health plan is in Oregon and can serve some other parts of our system. But for the most part, we are de depending on our regional provider delivery system to actually deliver the Medicaid improvement strategies that we have developed. They are community-specific, and they focus on a couple of things. And when I say them, they'll sound kind of like logical, like we should have been thinking about this all along. But regardless, this is where we are today. So of the six things, they include improving the access, whether it's ambulatory, outpatient, home-based care, digital health, whatever, making sure that we actually improve the access. We want to do things that focus on the prevention and maintenance and try to reduce the need for emergency room and urgent or acute hospital care needs. Um, and we want to do that not only by ourselves, but with formalized and stronger partnerships with community partners. We're not the end-all and be-all. We should not have our, our strategies focus only on ourselves. It's a community-wide effort. And that's about the social determinants of health. That includes that as well. Really important, right? You can't have health if someone is homeless, hungry, afraid, and not safe. Um, probably two is the care management piece on care coordination, and that is work that we have made sure we have focused on the Medicaid population, the most complex patients um, of any age range, um, and then what we do is figure out how to make sure that we are tying skilled clinicians 
pharmacists, nurses, etc., along with community partners to get folks what they need for health, as well as the social determinant um, solutions that we have. Three is hospital-based case management and transitional care. Um, we need to start planning on someone being able to leave the hospital. The hospital is not their home. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are there for the acute care, but we cannot plan for people to leave if they are homeless. We cannot plan for them to leave if they don't have access to mental health, to medications, to services that they need. So we have to do a better job of connecting our care management with hospital-based care. And on, on the homeless, you gave an example in your article about Alaska. Can you just touch on that real quick? So the Alaska um, Provider Delivery System for Providence did a fantastic job in developing um, partnerships with community groups that are already um, heroes in my mind in their own right. But those partnerships allow for folks who are homeless, particularly those individuals who have a history of prior incarcerations, et cetera, to actually have a place to go to and to live. Um, And at the same time, they've actually arranged for some health care to be delivered where they are. So we're doing more in prevention and maintenance rather than waiting for them to acutely come in in need. Um, And we also do things pretty much not only avoids avoidable emergency room use, but when people do come in and are hospitalized, they have a home to go to. And that is tremendous. You could probably think of a lot of places in the world where you would not want to be homeless. You do not want to be homeless in Alaska. Amen. And then the results. Um, Real quick, you've had some good success with this strategy? We have. um, In addition to access care management, hospitals, um, areas of focus, um, and having some great partnerships have developed, we've been able to reduce our trend in Medicaid uncompensated care. We were, uh, had a run rate of $1.6 billion, um, and we have reduced it to $1.1 billion. And we still have a long way to go. It is a long process. But if we can reduce the cost at, as well as improve the care, improve the quality, and improve the, uh, the dignity and the experience of the people that we are serving, we win. They win. Hallelujah. I like it. All right. I would encourage everybody listening to check out your article, Managing Medicaid the Right Way. That's in the current issue of Health Progress. Thank you, Dr. Meadows. You're welcome. And that'll do it for Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. I'm Brian Reardon. And with me always is Marianne Steiner. Marianne, thanks again for, for being part of this episode. And until next time, we'll talk to you.